October 13th, 2011. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's Neurobiology Podcast. Our guest today is Kamran Kodoka, who is a professor in the Department of Neuroscience at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine in New York. Hi, Kamran. Hi. Uh, his lab works on the cellular and synaptic mechanisms of cerebellar function using a varied arsenal of electrophysiological, optical, modeling, and behavioral methods, all with an eye toward modeling function and working out potential therapeutic targets for cerebellar disorders. Around the room today, we've got Fidel Santa Maria. Hi. We've got Jim Bauer. Hello. Slowing it down for us. And we've got Todd Troyer. Hello. So, come right in a in a recent Nature Neuroscience article, you <laughs> outlined such a, um, a fully realized story of a pathological condition all the way from mutant protein to biophysical mechanism to behavioral syndrome and ultimately uh, therapy in what turns out to be kind of an unlikely target structure. That I want to give that full uh, airtime before you start arguing with Jim about what the cerebellum does. So, first off... Uh, how did a hardcore basic science guy like you get sucked into the world of human movement disorder ther and, and therapies? And, and doesn't this kind of make you the poster child for translational research? Wow. Okay. Um, so uh, as I discussed in the talk, the, the, the way we got to this project was from very pure basic science biophysics. And our intentions were to understand the contribution of the sodium potassium ATPS pump to... Um, activity of Purkinje cells. And as I mentioned, it seems that they play a really unusual role in controlling the cell's pacemaking and, and, and um, input-output function. And that's actually not in the paper. And it was during that process that we sort of got turned on to the fact that um, perhaps mutations in the sodium pump can have adverse consequences for cerebral function and therefore uh, movement. And when the mutation when the fact that mutations in alpha-3 isoform of the pump cause rapid onset dystonia Parkinsonism came out, we were very keen to prove or try to disprove our hypothesis, and that's how we got in this path of looking at the disease, trying to figure out what causes it and what not. Um, so that's how we first got involved in it. Do you think, I mean, if you, can, if you study one, uh, well, one, one protein or one channel or one, something pretty specific, and you think that no one's going to care. <laughs> if you find something, well, maybe if this goes wrong, what would go wrong? What difference would it make? And if you actually are lucky enough to have success uh, in terms of thinking that something might be this focused, <coughs> going wrong with this thing would have a, uh, you know, a disease kind of thing, well, then you're great. You go with it, right? I, mean, yeah, I think that, that lots of people would like to have something where you, you get that bottleneck and then you... of. Of, of something that would translate in disease, and then. But, but but I would argue that if if you have chosen a good for basic scientific question, even if you are not quote lucky enough to follow it to a disease, somebody down the road, five, ten, fifteen, twenty years time will. I mean, when when we were studying, say, um, we being a scientist, inactivation of potassium channels at the time, it seemed like the mundane kind of crazy thing to do just because you wanted to fill the time. And it wasn't 10 years later when we realized that mutations or changes in the inactivation potassium channels cause heart disease. So it's great when you're the person who first started does it, but I, I think it's important for us and for the public to know that if you have a good basic science question, it's important to run with it, even <coughs> if there is, quote, no immediate translational value to it. So what do you think of the consequences of the push now through the federal government to actually turn all this into translational scientists? 
Well, I'm actually really quite concerned as a person who, I mean, and, and I say this with a bit of a thing because the last couple of projects we have done, as you suggested, could be seen as a poster child for transnational research, but really we didn't start that way. Had we not started from the basic science, I am confident we could have made no contribution to, to disease or therapy. And my concern is exactly the same, that with this in my opinion, naive push that everyone should be doing immediate transnational research, 5, 10, 15 years down the road, we don't have any foundations of science to rely on to come up with the next obvious thing. Now, the next obvious thing in my research, what we had done was, oh, try the brain stimulation, go for this. But it's because we did eight or nine years of science. And if, if we don't have that anymore, I think we will be in real NIH and, and U.S. research will be in real trouble. And, that, and that's what I guess I meant by lucky, right? So there's some things where you get, where you can make that connection that are, that go quickly to immediate next steps and, and the pathway is clear. And there's lots of ways, lots of times where the path from basic science to translational stuff is not so clear. And so what are you going to Say if if you make the 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 easy cases or not easy the the fortuitous cases where the connections are pretty direct the poster childs then everybody gets the impression that that's the way things work right and and, and that's and, yeah well but in that sense is the phenotype right um, stargazing has a, a similar story as your um, alpha three subunit of the sodium pump I mean a single mutation has a significant um, a phenotype, right? In, in this case, these mice stare to uh, like look at at the ceiling all the time, right? And it's a mutation in a calcium channel. So, <clears throat> if you go, I mean, we have now about a decade now of, of like directed and undirected uh, mutagenesis, right? Uh, and building screens, and I think it's more the um, industrial labs that are interested in this. They have the means uh, to create databases of, of mutations, even if there is no phenotype. And, and you can go to the Jackson Lab um, website and find this one that they don't have much, right? And eventually, eventually, if you, if you do some work, maybe you will find it. But um, the phenotypes are kind of difficult to determine, especially in reduced preparations that are mice. Right. I mean, they're not few humans. So even in the case of the, the link that you've made, um, the fact that you could make the link was dependent upon a whole lot of basic research that's been go going on about sodium channels and Purkinje cells and pumps and et cetera. So one could ask the question, um, and I've heard this discussed in Washington, are we now at the point where we have enough basic research that we can shift to more looking at translational and direct connections, and maybe we just have enough basic research. Yeah, I, I think that's where I disagree, because I've been, um, like you probably, in the study section for the last nine years, and I've seen the slow shift to exactly that sort of idea where immediately the next grant comes up and we are discussing and we realize we don't have a clue about that field. And I would the same the same. I mean, again, in, in the talk that you heard today, you and I, just before we talk, we're discussing what cerebellum does for a living. And now here it is, we're saying we know so much that we can immediately link it to a movement disorder. And I completely disagree there. I, I think, um, yes, we have learned a great deal, but I would say we know a hundred thousands of what we need to know to be able to do rational approaches to particularly the brain. And I, I think we, we have to continue with basic science research to be able to get But uh, going, going back to, to that 
conversation, right? I think um, um, we, I think the people that work in the Cervalum, we agree that, or at least I agree with myself, uh, <laughs> saying that that uh, the Perkinia cellar, the Cervalum, is a structure that we know the most than any other structure. I know. Fidel, you know the most what? You know, most we know the most uh, micro, uh, in microstructure, um, overall structure, and electrophysiology. Like the Purkinje cell is pretty well studied. It had, we know a lot more about the electrophysiology of Purkinje cells than of pyramidal cells. Um, and we also know more about the biochemistry of synaptic plasticity, um, um, even, even, even without now, even with the presynaptic and postsynaptic parts of synaptic plasticity that that exist in, in the parallel cell synapse, than in in the hippocampus, right? I mean, the, where calcium goes, we have we have measured it, right? We can measure calcium in the dendrites and spines, um, and we have correlated that pretty well and mechanistically to the induction of LTD. Yeah. So right. don't don't you know what the cerebellum does? Well, it is not important. I will argue that it is uh, a matter of basic science because what it does is is how it does it, right? We can more or less understand, we have a better understanding now how information gets processed from granule cells to the parallel fiber system, to Purkinje cells, and now what what is being encoded, some will say that it is some type of motor-related activity that is related to ataxia, and some other, the fringe, <laughs> uh, will say that it's just sensory. But, but, but let me come back to that, actually, Philip, because, I, I mean, you picked it a good case for me to, to counter you. Because I actually don't think that the amount that we know about Purkinje cells gives us a lot of power. Let me give you some specific examples. So first, as you know, we are debating right now even what about Purkinje cell activity encodes information. Let's not worry about yeah. what the information is. There's a rate code, there's a pattern code, there's a pause code. I go even further back. You know, something dear to your heart is the LTD, right? Mm-hmm. You know, the paper came out in Neuron, and we had a long debate in the Supplement Gordon Conference whether LTD has anything to do with, mo- with learning, motor learning at all or not. So here is a phenomenon that we have studied for many years. Perhaps we know a great deal about his biochemical pathways, electrophysiological pathways, and the field mm. at large is debating whether it serves any purpose whatsoever in learning motor tasks. So, 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 totally away from me. Go ahead, guys. Sorry, this one's not under your control. And that is not saying that what you've done has been wrong, it's just that. We have a lot of pieces, but we have no clue how to put them together yet. Well, it's actually, a, the, the LTD case is a really interesting case. So LTD is long-term depression, and it's an effect in uh, neurons and synapses in the cerebellum, where under some conditions you can actually decrease the strength of the connection between neurons and the Purkinje cell, and the Purkinje cell is the primary output structure of the cerebellum, so this is in principle important. The LTD story is a really interesting story, um, I think, because basically uh, one of the funny things about the cerebellum, because we have known about its circuitry for a long time, is that the cerebellum, more than any other structure, our ideas about its function are actually related to its circuit, Okay, which in principle would be a good idea, except 
our interpretation of the circuit may not have been correct, and therefore a lot of the theories may not be correct. But this is a really good case, because in the late 60s, early 70s, two guys proposed that synaptic modification of the inputs of the Purkinje cells were fundamental to motor learning. That set several investigators, one particularly prominent investigator, on a 15-year search to find okay, LTD. So, so you're talking about Mar Albus. Mar Albus in the late 60s, early 70s, yeah. and Masao Ito, Ito in the 80s. In the, no, in the, in the 70s. It took 10 years, 15 years, for him to actually get the conditions right to show LTD. And the reason he did it, he was highly motivated by Mar Albus because he believed Mar Albus was true and correct. Well, as we've continued to study LTD at a basic science level, it turns out that the properties of LTD may actually not be particularly the ones you'd expect to be associated with motor learning, <coughs> a result that was predicted some time ago. <laughs> anyway, um, I don't remember exactly by who. Um, but Look it up, guys. So, so this is sort of a case where in some ways jumping too quickly right. to conclusions about how things work ended up producing a whole bunch of science and a whole bunch of data and very likely us marching down the wrong path for many, many years. Isn't that how science works? I mean, was there nothing of value that came out of that march down what you call the wrong path? We should ask our guest speaker. Actually, I'm not 100% sure that it was the wrong path. Exactly. Uh, so, at the moment. Um, that's right? why we should ask. <laughs> <laughs> so, 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 I mean, th th there certainly are challenges to whether LTD has anything to do with motor learning or not, and there are quite good challenges. But the consequence is, is, is that at least some people are going back and reevaluating the first assumption, which I think is really important in science, right? I mean, I discuss it with my students all the time. Science doesn't work by proving a hypothesis. It works by setting up a hypothesis and try to refute it as much as you can. And then once you have refuted, you come with a new one. And this LTD being involved in motor learning was, had become a theory rather than a hypothesis. And at least what has happened is that that theory has been shaken sufficiently that now it has become a hypothesis again. People are going back. Now, we've learned a great deal about the components involved in LTD, whether it plays a major role or not. But to spin the pan for NIH, some of the molecules involved in LTD are the ones that then mutated cause ataxias in humans. So understanding the basic science that came around from under trying to go after some of those pathways may provide us a lot of information for on for therapeutics for understanding right, disease. Right, like the PKC, it's a PKC gamma story from... It's PKC gamma, and, and, and if, uh, as uh, you know, um, uh, um, Two of the scars, the spinal ataxias, are mutations in proteins that interact with calcium release from IP3 receptors. And in fact, rapamycin that is being used now to, to try to improve motor oh. performance uh -huh. was shown in animal model of the scar, um, Elia Vishpurzwani showed. So they that, give it to the animals and, 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 and rescues the ataxia. So this reduced approach has a, a generated now two or three stories from the molecular level all the way to the behavior and the learning, even if you you don't have to, the LTD as the mechanism of storing information or the first step of storing information, you can debate about that, but you can use that as a proxy for change in synaptic plasticity, right? It, it could be upregulation of, of dendritic, uh, change in the dendritic, dendritic excitability, right? 
Um, that could be the ultimate way. But then you have PKC gamma that if you change it, you mutate that, then you don't have LTD, and then you don't have um, eye blink conditioning, and, and you can just affect that in the cerebellum, right? So it goes so, all the way from a single so, molecule so, to behavior, so. and now your work, um, I mean, it, it is in the same line. You go into like affecting a single channel that has a significant effect on the entire body, right? And it's only in the cerebellum. Um, so let's actually go um, out let's, of the... Can we just tell the story, first yeah, of that's all? What for I'm our, do. Okay, great. Okay. Oh, right. I'm not going to tell a story. Go ahead, Jim. <laughs> Jim's always Our new host. And Carlos <laughs> Palladini just walked in, so it's Hello. gone Hello. completely. Hello. You, remember, you remember Carlos. He's, <laughs> he's still here. Um, <clears throat> So, oh. yeah, so uh, all this molecular biology and BKC and BKA and all this stuff. So I think it's sort of interesting in your talk today that... One, we shouldn't refer yes. to the talk. No, okay. We're not supposed to refer to the no. talk? Let, okay, are, 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 we're really pissing off our listeners right I, now. I apologize <laughs> for those of you in Finland. Sorry, that are pissed everyone. Off. <laughs> just, just, just a moment, though. We'll get there. Just a sec. So for ignoring the talk... The most interesting thing, one of two interesting things about it, one was that your first reference is actually to work in 1886, published 1886 or 84, which actually that Florence did the original work in chickens in France, where basically the cerebellum was taken out, and what happens is chickens fall over. Okay, and that's actually what started us on the path towards the cerebellum as a motor structure, and we've, uh, without deviation. Without allowing deviance, oh, that's the wrong way to put it. Anyway, we've been marching forward. So, an interesting thing about your work is that you are still using lesion removal uh, experiments as a way to confirm uh, hypothesis whether they be linked to sodium channels or not. And an interesting thing about your recent work is it would almost suggest, related to the cerebellum in particular, that the way to actually reduce the likelihood of motor dysfunction is actually to not have the cerebellum present. Why don't we let him tell the story? Yeah. <laughs> you might want to fill in the details. Yeah. <laughs> so, is the cure for dystonia a cerebellectomy? <laughs> First of all, let's talk about rapid <laughs> dystonia and Parkinsonism. So uh, tell us about it, and then let's talk about your kind of uh, a little bit laborious approach to creating an animal model for this disease and then what you chose to do to sort of look at the okay. all levels of the circuit. So rapid onset dystonia of Parkinsonism is an extremely rare movement disorder that it is caused by mutations in the alpha-3 isoform of the sodium pump. And the mutations in one form or another um, reduce the effective function of the sodium pump. So they could either reduce the affinity of the pump for the substrate, reduces turnover rate and biophysical properties, um, or its expression levels. And patients with this could have been perfectly normal or almost normal symptom-free for years, and then when they experience a severe stress, such as childbirth, running a marathon, giving a public speech or something, or alcohol binge, um, they suddenly develop this um, pretty nasty disorder where they're dystonic, uh, alpha and become bilcher bound and they have Parkinsonian features and that stays with them for the rest of their life. Um, so um, 
our, our goal was try to understand how this comes about and, and our first approach given that this is a um, hereditary disorder was to think about making a transgenic mouse model. But when we started looking in the literature, we realized that for a large number of hereditary dystonias, when the mouse was made, um, the animals did not show any phenotype. And there is a huge amount of debate going back and forth as to why that occurs. And the most likely one to me is that there is some sort of compensation which is going on in the mice that does not occur to the same extent or occurs differentially in humans that prevents the mice from showing a dystonia. So our laborious approach, is, as you suggested, was taking of the uh, advantage of the fact that the sodium pump had been studied for 50 years before us by others. Um, and they had established exactly what this function is and what are very good pharmacologic tools to go after it. And basically, we just hijacked their research. They used Wabain, which is a very selective um, um, pump blocker, and we used some of the more recent techniques, although as Jim suggests, lesioning is about 150, 200 years old, um, to try to target different brain regions astrotaxically um, with osmotic pumps with Wabin to partially block the pumps in these different structures. And um, we were amazed that it worked, to be absolutely honest. <laughs> uh, we, we, we thought it's a first approach and you have to go to more sophisticated techniques like using SHRNA or SIRNAs. We've been using them since and they work as well. So we're sort of validating our own data with, um, uh, with uh, molecular biological genetic approaches. But the initial strategy was simply targeting with a blocker different brain regions. And much to our, our amazement, what we found was that dystonia in this case at least using our animal model, was not initiated from basic anglia. It was coming from the cerebellum. And what Jim refers to is that in this case, it is better to remove the cerebellum, or at least its influence on the rest of the body, on the rest of the brain, than to leave it there. Because if it is there, the fact that it's providing erroneous signals, at least to the basic anglia, um, precipitates a very nasty movement disorder like dystonia. Um, in, in other cases, too, um, in some ataxias that we have been working on, we have also found that in mice, at least, um, the mice can be ataxic for their entire life. But if we were to remove the cerebellum, they improve much better. And I think in those cases, again, um, it might be because other brain structure like basic ganglion cortex can then compensate in the absence of this erroneous output from the cerebellum, whereas... <laughs> As Jim will put it, and I would agree, if you have instability or instability in the system because the cerebellum is providing these erroneous signals all the time, the system has a very is a, has a moving target and it's going to have a really hard time to compensate for the absence of um, or correct signals coming from the um, cerebellum. What, what would be that lack of plasticity in the long term if we believe that there's erroneous signals from the cerebellum um, as opposed to like erroneous, erroneous signals in um, a double vision, right? In a stroke patient, you will get a double vision, and then after four months, the the they recover um, normal vision, right? There's a rewiring of the system that nobody understands fully, but uh, the erroneous signal gets. Well, it's so, eliminated or compensated somewhere. So, right? so the, the way I would see it very, very naively as a, as a biophysicist and cellular physiologist is that let's assume that there are homostatic mechanisms to make sure that various neurons are 
the final various neurons are within the limited physiological range of relevance. And if the input is reduced, for example, they can upregulate, say, the sodium channels and increase the firing rate so they're within the range. Or if the input is, is, is reduced um, or, or decreased, they can do the reverse. So basically, they can maintain the, in the right range. When you have running your signals from cerebellum, at least in our case for the ataxia and dystonia, what we found was that the average firing rate of the output nuclei neurons was the same. It's just that they were firing in a burst. They were going high rates and then pauses. But as in, in total, the average firing was the same. So then a target neuron would not necessarily see as to how, in, in my very naive approach, how to adjust, whether it should increase or decrease its average firing rate. It depends on the time constant. Uh, right, so it's right. And, and I think the bursting is fast enough, it may not allow you. But if you had removed the running signal, then it, it, it would not be bursting anymore, um, or it could adjust by increasing or decreasing its, its, its firing rate or synaptic strength or connectivity or whatever to, to maintain that hemostatic system. Because has it been shown that all, well, all or not all, but the, the downstream pathway from cerebellum, does it uh, show synaptic plasticity? That to continue to continue what, activity. What neuron doesn't show like, synaptic well, plasticity? Well, I mean, do, do all of them show synaptic plasticity in, neurons, the, in the range yes. of um, cerebellar firing rates? Oh, I don't know about that. Because, I mean, that, that, that is just following up on what you just said, right? If, if they only care about firing rate and they don't care about, time, uh, about uh, uh, spike timing, then sure, I mean... They, they, By they the way, who would ever design a system or who would ever evolve a system that depends only on firing rate? Right. I'm not going to argue that. I'm, I'm <laughs> just why, asking. Why I'm discuss, just uh, uh, the absurd. delineating the, um, <laughs> the possible mechanism. No, I, mean, I, I agree. There are lots of different mechanisms. But, but I, I think for me it's much easier to come up with, with or think about compensatory mechanisms yeah. when you don't have highly erratic input to your system. Right, right. Uh, where you're saying you remove it. We're talking about two different things. So one right. is a circuitry issue, right? right. And then spike timing is at uh, absolute importance. The other issue that I think uh, Carmen is talking about is more of a homeostatic issue. Exactly. Where the cell um, then has, um, then responds to all the circuitry inputs by making homeostatic changes. And that's a slower issue. It's not a point-to-point -point issue. And it's something that the cell takes time to develop. And then if it's constantly getting erratic inputs, then um, that's going to change its homeostatic response to, to things. And then, then the circuitry as a whole gets changed. And so the, well, apparently, the point that time, apparently you know, that's, that's despite the spike timing is an issue in terms of circuitry, of course, and that's where you get things like dystonia. But Well, if I understand uh, correctly, the, the symptoms then, when you remove the cerebellum, you recover quite fast. Two or three weeks. Yeah. Right? Which, so, by the way... Then, the, then, then there was no so uh, one of the significant... I mean, the plasticity was not as strong as, uh, um, as suggested. It seems that it's just like integrating the instantaneous erroneous signal from the cerebellum, and it's working erroneously. For 20 years, you remove the cerebellum, and then it kind of recovers, Right? Yeah. It's like changing a bad part. There was no, that well, so, is consistent well, with no plasticity. It's sort of like changing a bad part, but it's like changing a very special kind of bad part. Mm -hmm. So the, the funny thing about well, the, just the fact about the cerebellum, which has been known for a long, long time, is that it isn't the path to anywhere. 
that basically it sits on top of mm -hmm. all these other systems. Right. So it's specifically, well. That's a very Sherringtonian view, Jim. I said, but not very <laughs> So I don't think it's the head ganglion <laughs> proprioceptive system, however. Um, so, but what I'm saying is the fact that the cerebellum actually sits in this loop on top of all mm -hmm. these other systems mm -hmm. uh, seems to me puts it in a particular position where if it's not functioning properly, it can have a lot of disruptive influence on normal function. And one of the things that, again, your research has shown, and there are other examples, and by the way, uh, one other point to make, which we discussed earlier today, it's really interesting. If, if you talk to your average neurosurgeon and ask them what part of the brain, uh, or even your above-average neurosurgeon, and you ask them what part of the brain do you like to work on, the answer usually is the cerebellum, and the reason is because their patients improve. Whereas usually when neurosurgeons do something, the patients don't improve. However, I challenge you to look in the literature for a careful study of the recovery of motor function after cerebellar ablation. It isn't there. And we were talking today because you're now doing these studies and we were sort of laughing that it's going to be very hard to get it published. Because in fact, it's sort of the dirty understory of the cerebellum, which is that this thing it's supposed to be responsible for, which is motor coordination, actually does not depend on it. Okay, And uh, in fact, its presence can dis disrupt movement, but its absence improves movement. But and that suggests that the structure is quite different from how it's been perceived yeah. since 1650. What, what I agree or, with, me, almost everything you said, Jim, I want to throw a monkey wrench in, because uh, I don't know whether um, you have access to From Neuron to Brain, the book that um, was written by Bob Martin and Kufler and those guys. Uh -huh. The third edition has, in the last chapter, talks about the complexity of the brain, or the power of the brain. And there are three particular um, um, CAT scans and or MRIs, the combination of those, that I love to teach the students the first day of my class. So the first one shows a very, very specific lesion in the motor cortex. You know, it's just a tiny fiber tract. And the, that patient is paralyzed in the opposite side of the body, completely paralyzed. The next MRI is a lady having her left hand off. And then they show the MRI, and the right hemisphere of the brain is entirely missing. And they say, well, how is that possible? The right hemisphere is gone. It, it didn't drop off. It was surgically removed because she had epilepsy when she was young. And the other half of the brain compensated completely and managed to be able to do it just fine. And the last one is the one I call a no-brainer. It is from a 67-year-old lady who used to play the, the organ in her church, had a perfectly normal job and a perfectly normal life. She just had a slightly big head. And she went to the doctor at the age of 67 to neurologist to complain for headaches. And when they did the MRI, they realized that the, what constitutes her entire brain is something about two millimeter thick stuck to her skull. And the rest of her head is filled with CSF. So she had hydrocephaly when she was young, which pushed the entire brain and squeezed it and lost actually many of the structure. The cell number was, was, was quite low. But even in her case, the brain managed to completely compensate for the absence of almost every structure to have a normal person. Well, wait. So there are two, there are two things about that to say. First is that our judgment of normal is really uh, trivial, usually. She did better than you and I. I don't know what you think. Yeah. I don't. <laughs> well, I, I, I personally don't go to the doctor with a headache because I don't want to know that I only have this strip of cortex. So. But anyway, um, so the first, the first thing whenever, well, well, a couple of things are true. One is 
I think our view of how brains work, which has been heavily influenced by what we know about uh, telecommunication systems and railroads, uh, is probably not accurate. Okay, that its that its complexity is tremendous. One of the things you find out if you start playing around with chips, for example, or in the old days with circuit boards, is you can get all kinds of crazy effects all over the place, which are not predictable by the circuitry because of sort of the emergent complexity of the thing as a whole. So no question we're way out of our league in figuring those things out. But I will say one other thing. Um, You know, we made a wild guess, as you know, because we've talked about it, that maybe cerebellar patients would have a, a hard time with pitch perception. It's a wild guess because who knew or whoever thought that the cerebellum might have anything to do with auditory perception? or with the auditory system, which doesn't involve move, movement. It's just sort of a wild guess, but it, it turns out to be true. And <clears throat> the really interesting thing is that that nobody knew that. Nobody had noticed or looked. So I think one real problem we have in neuroscience as a whole is that our understanding of behavior is so minimal. And the measures we really have for behavior are so minimal. I mean, so that, for example, one of the things you can, if there's anything you can clearly pick up in humans, it's motor dysfunction. It's obvious you fall over, okay? But picking up sensory perceptions of all sorts are really complicated and really hard, and our tools are simply not at the same level even of sophistication as the tools we now have to study the brain. So we can study, you know, neurons at the level of microseconds and, and, and you know, millivolts and, and microns, and yet our understanding of behavior is so crude, and the measurements we use for behavior are so crude that it's way out of whack right. with respect to the tools we have to actually describe the brain. And I personally think that that's something we're going to have to do something about if we have any chance of looking at, you know, sort of subtle behavior of the nervous system. Because behavior has no, no definitions. Right, a phenotype goes with yeah. the eye of the beholder. You can't, yeah. you can't take behavior, put it in a test tube, dump it a bunch of detergents, grind it up, and come up with a, a nice... There's no, there's, uh, no, there's no absolute scale, right? There's no zero point. You know, it, it, definitions come by consensus. Whereas, for example, in math, um, zero is zero doesn't matter if a million people say zero is not zero. It's still defined as zero. Well, I mean, you could say... You you can't do that with behavior, right? Well, you can. Well, that's what's... I mean, I think in some ways you can't do that with biology either. Well, you can do that with... No, but they're they're measurable things, right? So There are measurable things in behavior. There are measurable things in behavior, but, for example, in electrophysiology, zero millivolts across the membrane is zero millivolts. I don't care what you tell me. Well, Well, someone's in the cold, there's like no behavior. Because you're just (laughs) interpreting behavior... I mean, if you interpret behavior as the position of every um, joint... We are not that far from from doing that. Probably not in mice and rats because of their morphology, but we can do that pretty pretty good. Yeah. Uh, like um, I was just recently at a biomedical engineering uh, meeting, and they can just put a few dots, fluorescent dots, not even in every single joint, but then they can reverse the the problem, inverse the problem, and then figure out where the joints are based on just knowing how many joints exist, and then they know where they're going to intersect, and then recreate the movement of the, of the horse, and then they can, pre- they can predict if the horse 
is uh, healthy that, or not. It's horse, right? You're saying horse, horse. Okay. Yeah, sure. But uh, those are. <laughs> and uh, um, there was an interesting review in in in, um, in, in science about like. Um, I mean, I'm deviating a little bit, but uh, the, 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 uh, about simulations in, in 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 movies, right? Now we have we are at the point that we can simulate uh, be, uh, very very subtle behavior, right? Like like in the movie Avatar, right? We don't even realize which movements they are programmed because they re- just record and and they generated statistics about the movement of the face, right? And then you can recreate that. In a computer, so so we are we're not there yet, there yet, but we probably will will be there in like ten, twenty years yeah, because so, so of the okay. maybe. So more I guess, I guess what I meant to say was that so yeah, we can recreate locomotion and things like that. But then but from there you get of, the statistics. Of, no, yeah, and, and, and with statistics, I'm, I agree, I agree mm-hmm. with what you're saying. But in terms of interpretation of what a specific behavior means, if an animal runs faster, which we can measure that really easily. He's, all of a sudden, he runs faster because we did something. Why is the animal running faster? But once you have this, these, these machines come on. It's a great segue because I have to go to my animal behavior course uh, to teach because right now. Cheese. So yeah. it's, it was wonderful seeing you. And, wait, wait, wait. Uh, Hey. I'm not running this show. You can go ahead. Cameron, I want to give you the last word. <laughs> the last word. I want you to bring it all together because it just went in all kinds of directions. <laughs> Tell us about your MO here. I mean, your, the future yeah. for you. The future for me? Yes. So, 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 so I must admit, I have really enjoyed the research we've been doing the last, say, 10 years or so. And, and, and what I have enjoyed about it is being able to go all the way from basic, really hardcore basic science to something that I call behavior, even though movement is not, I agree with you, is not real behavior. And, and one of the things that I really enjoyed has been coming to new fields like behavior or dystonia or ataxias and, and then asking the question, do I, do I have something to contribute? And, and my background is quantitative, so I try to bring in more quantification into the behavior if I could and, and also learn quite a few new things. And it has been fascinating because I have learned a great deal from those fields. It is helping me in my very, very basic science, nerdy biophysics. And I'm hoping that I can contribute some from my narrative biophysics that is helping the other fields. And so for us, I think in terms of my lab, um, you know, we always have had three different sectors. We're doing very basic science, pacemaking and synaptic integration, some computational models. And the others have been to try to see whether we can use animal models of disease to test our basic science hypothesis. Right? You know, it, it, the best hypothesis to whether is a rate code or something is whether you think. It is defective in an animal, and that's why it can walk. And if you're right, if you can fix that rate code to what your basic science predicts and the animal walks, that was a very good, that's as close as you could come to validating that perhaps what you were thinking was a major component of the system is in fact was. And, and, and I see a nice future along those lines as something that is keeping me excited about going forward. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. This is Cameron Kodake, a neuroscientist talk shop.